For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is Golf with Jay Delsing. A two-time All-American at UCLA. A participant in nearly 700 PGA Tour events. Seven professional wins to his credit. Over 30 years of professional golf experience. A member of the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. This is Golf with Jay Delsing. Happy New Year's, everyone. This is Golf with Jay Delsing, and along with Jay Delsing, I'm Dan McLaughlin. It's a best-of show as we give you some of the best interviews we've had over the past year. What a pleasure it is to bring in the great Golf Hall of Famer, Lee Trevino. And, Lee, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time so much. No problem. How you guys doing, man? We've been down here in an ice storm, so I'm kind of uh, – my. Your daughter's birthday today, so um, I'll be talking fast. I'll be talking real fast today. <laughs> Do you ever not talk fast, though? You always are yeah, talking every fast. Once, every, every once in a while. You know, when the, when the priest used to make me say the Hail Marys, and, and, and uh, <laughs> I, could, I couldn't remember all the words, so I'd go real slow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> understood. Understood. Oh, my gosh. Lee, I, I sit there and think about your career and a fantastic career. But one one thing that co- comes to mind, Lee, and I want you to talk about this just a little bit, please. You you really did accomplish what you accomplished in a short period of time, maybe 13 years or so on tour. Tell us a little yeah, bit I, about I, that. Well, you know, a lot of people ask me all the time. They always say, you know, they, they think that I had a, a, a long career, but I did not. I, I played 13 years, and then I hurt my back. I got hit by lightning, as you well know, in 75. And then I was out for another year, so I really didn't even play 13 years. And then I uh, I, I, I didn't have anything to, to do, so I had no options. I had to get my body back in shape and, and get back out there. But, yeah, 13 years was it. Uh, I won six majors, 29 tournaments in those 13 years. That, you know, that, that all that means is that I hit a hell of a lot of practice balls. You <laughs> well, know what I'm saying? You know, you jumped right into one of the questions we're going to get into, and that is getting struck by lightning at the Western Open. I, I'm so curious. I mean, how were you able to bounce back from that? What was that life experience like for Lee Trevino? Well, you know, it kind of set me back a little bit. Nobody really knew too much about, uh, you know, lightning. And uh, it kind of entered. I was with Jerry Hurd, which I thought was one of the finest players I'd ever been up against. Uh, and he never played again. I mean, this guy would have would have set some records. He would have won some majors. I mean, it, not much telling what he could have done. And I was with Mike Fetchick, which was a, a big uh, club pro out of New York, but he was a, a tremendous player. He had done he had uh, played on the senior tour and, and done whatever he had to do. But the three of us were the, oh, I think it was a par three, 12 or 13 there at Butler. And at that time, they didn't have the, the sirens and the warnings and all that stuff about, uh, you know, about lightning and uh, in the air. So we, we just, they called the tournament because it was cloudy and it was fixing to rain. So we stayed there on the 13th hole. And I guess the lightning bolt, what we figured it, it hit the lake. 
and the rays bounced, in other words, sideways and caught me, Bobby Nichols, Arnold Palmer's golf club. Uh, Mike Fetchick, believe it or not, didn't didn't have any problems, but uh, it ruptured my back and it ruptured uh, Jerry Hurd's back, and uh, he's never come back from it. You know, I, I talked uh, I talked to him not too long ago, about a year ago. He's down at Fiddlesticks in Florida. You know, I I, I had a unique way of playing, as you well know. I, I played golf differently from everybody else. For some reason, you know, I learned to to hold on to the club and keep the club face square to target longer than anybody else. And I wouldn't have been able to participate today. The courses are too long. They're all, the, the greens are hidden in front. You have to go in the air. You know, I could bump and run. If, if I would have been playing in the Open Championship in Great Britain from the time I was 20, I probably would have won that tournament 10 times, you know, because that's the way I played. I bump and run. I hit it. I hit a little cut. Can't get in much trouble. So it didn't really make any difference to me what course I played. I didn't have to look at it. If it had a tee, a fairway, and a green, I, you got me, baby. I'm ready for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Lee. I, I, I can remember just getting on tour in 1985, but you kind of came out of the booth to win a major down at Shoal Creek, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I came out of the booth. Uh, I hadn't played in uh, in three years. Uh, you know, I dabbled a little bit, but I didn't play. I'd won the PGA uh, in in 74 at Tanglewood, so I was uh, exempt to play in that one. So I came out of the booth uh uh, and ran into a golf course that was extremely hard. Uh, The rough was absolutely unbelievable there. No one could get out of that rough uh, there at Shoal Creek. I I liked the layout, and it was kind of flat, as you well you remember. Not much undulation in there. Plus, my wife had bought me a putter in Holland. And it, it was a ping A blade, which I had never putted with a ping. And I kept, and I kept shooting 64s with it. And I said, man, this way, you know, I always putted with a blade. I said, I didn't know it was this easy to make a putt. You got any more of those, Lee? I could use one of those. Hey, I had the guy, you know, you know that, uh, that, uh, Carson made me two of them. He put a line on one of them and he didn't on the other one. And, uh, and they made them for me. Uh, he made me one, but I bought the other one. It didn't have a line on it. And I still have both of them. Yeah, I still have them both. And usually I don't keep golf clubs. I give them away. You know what I do with all my old clubs? Believe it or not, I don't sell them. I don't do anything. I, I, I take them to my pro at Preston Trails. And I'll have them all bundled up. And I says, can you take these and give them to the first tee, but don't tell them where they came from? He said, we'll take care of it. <laughs> I love that. that is and that's terrific. what I do with the clubs, yeah. I don't, I don't want them to know they're mine, no. Uh-uh. Hey, Lee, how come you don't like going into locker rooms? I'm curious about that. Well, I thought I think it's a waste of time. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, okay. I, I, I spent, listen, listen, when I started the tour, I would go and play, and I'd go two and a half, three hours early. I'd hit balls for three hours, then I'd go play the, the tournament. I, when I finish, and, and, and they'll tell you this, Jay, Jay, Jay will tell you this. And then when I finished, I would go to the driving range and I'd hit balls till dark. Then I would drive my car to a fast food place. I'd get a milkshake, two hamburgers and some French fries. And then I would look for a driving range. And then I would hit balls till nine or 10 o'clock at night. And I did this all the time. Besides that, I ran three miles at the track every day. I'm, I'm suffering from it now because I've got bone on bone on my knees. But uh, this is this is what I did. I don't like to do anything that wastes time. I, I, when the sun's out, golf ball's meant to be hit. 
people call me up. These young, these young guys, these young guys call me up and they say, you know, Hey, how you doing? I said, fine. I said, how you doing in the tournament? He said, well, he said, you know, I'm home now. And he says, I'm just getting, I'm working on it a little bit. And I said, well, what time is it there? He said, 11. And you still home? Yeah. We ain't gonna make it, baby. Nope. You ain't gonna make it. If you're home at 11 o'clock, you, you should have done hit. You should have done hit 500 balls by 11 o'clock. You understand whether they're chip, you kick them, you throw them, whatever, whatever you do. If you, if you want to make it in golf, you have got to put the time in and you got to think it, you got to eat it, you got to sleep it. And and, and that's, that's now saying all that, I, I, the exception of, of, of my wife, I haven't had a hell of a, 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 a great time. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know, I haven't been anywhere. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about 1971. Some of the years, I mean, you won the Varden five times. And to do that on the PGA Tour, people have no idea how hard it is to do one time. To do five times, but then to win what you did in 71, where you won the U.S. Open and beat Nicholas in a playoff. Then you went and won the Canadian Open, a tournament Jack never won. And then a week later, you had perhaps the greatest 20-day streak of golf in the history of the game. Yeah, I had uh, I, I had a, a great putting streak there. You, you know, you, you played this game at a high level, and all of a sudden you grab a putter, you grab a stroke, and then you start making everything. Unfortunately, you can't remember what the hell you're doing. And so you can't, uh, you, you can't uh, do it again next week and the week after. But I, I, for some reason, I, I had a hell of a three weeks of ball striking. Not, not much more than what I generally do, but the three golf courses fell right into line. Burkdale I knew about. I had played it before. Uh, in 1969, I had played it. I did not know Richelieu, but it wasn't that difficult of a golf course. It was well treed and all that. I like that. I like that because I play Royal Oaks here in Dallas, and it's tree-lined also. That's what I – Tennyson Park East, that's where I learned to play, real tree-lined. You know, the limbs reach over the fairways. I mean, they're not even as wide as they look. And then Marion, I just absolutely fell in love with it. How couldn't you fall in love with it? It wasn't a monstrous golf course. Uh, it, it, it made it, – it had a few turns, but it had a – it had quite a few dog legs to the right, Marion did. And uh, I like that. You know, I, I, I like that in a major championship when you give me a few holes that go to the right. Number one went to the right. You remember you had to, you had to drive it down the right side. Number, yeah, and, and, uh, and 18 had the big tree on the right. You had to cut it off that tee. Yeah, I, I like that. So, but the putter was what was hot. It, it, it was so hot, Jay. It was so hot that I didn't even line them up half the time. In other words, I just walked up and hit them. I wow. mean, if you remember, if you remember when I won the playoff, Mr. Lou, I had a four footer for a birdie to win the tournament and the camera missed it. Right. And the camera, the camera missed it because Mr. Lou was celebrating with his little hat on his head and the camera was over there. And by the time they came back to the green, hell, I'd put my ball down and hit it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even line it up. I have always wanted to ask you this question because in doing some research and reading an article many, many years ago about your cameo in Happy Gilmore, that you yeah. actually you actually kind of didn't like it. Is is I've always wanted to ask you, is that true? Well, I, I, I you know, I, I've never seen it from I've never seen it. From, really? Uh, uh, you know, all the way through. But I wasn't used to all the bad language 
and and I'm I kind of been a, a protector of bad language around ladies and around kids, and um, it, it kind of disturbed me a little. Bit. Now today, no, no problem. I could do a movie now. <laughs> Hell, <laughs> you know. But the, those words are used so much now that nobody would laugh. You know what I'm saying? I sure. mean, but back then that was a kind of a different thing, and I, I, I it, it kind of bothered me a little bit. You know, I it, it really did. Yeah. Lee, we're we're on a, a much more national level, but Danny and I are located here in St. Louis, and I know in yeah. the, and you won the St. Louis Open, I think in 1971, and then you got to come back for the Ascension Charity Classic last year. That oh, I was loved it. such a thrill for golf fans here yeah. to have you come back and and at the place, you know, where where you won the St. Louis Open. Well, and I wanted to say one thing. I didn't recognize the golf course much, but I'll tell you this. I, I don't know when they redid the golf course, but uh, but my hat's off to the membership and the architect and the people that were behind it because they did a hell of a job. It is wonderful. I really enjoyed coming back and playing. The clubhouse is immaculate, and um, it was uh, the members are lucky to have it. I'm telling you that right now. Yeah. Absolutely. What is it like being Lee Trevino? Because when people talk about great characters in sports, you're one of the great characters, not only in golf, but you're legendary in across all walks of life. So when you're walking down the street, you're in an airport, whatever the case may be, what is it yeah. like being Lee Trevino? Well, you, 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 the, you, the first thing that you do when you leave the house is you say to yourself, be nice. Be nice and say hello to everybody because people are going to come and get you. And, and you can you can have a fork almost up to your mouth, and, and a guy will grab your elbow and says, I, "How you doing? Nice to see you." Because I I'm approachable. They wouldn't have done that to Hogan because Hogan would have hit him with a wedge. You, you know what I'm saying? But uh, but but they know that I'm approachable. I expect it. My wife told me once, she says, when you quit doing it, you might as well stay home. I said, you know, you're right. When they quit doing it, I said, you're exactly right. And I told her, I said, you know, I tell this story. I said, you know something? I said, the pandemic was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And they said, why? I said, I put a hat on without a logo. I put a mask on and I put sunglasses on and I could go anywhere I wanted to go. And anybody bothered me. And I told him, I said, I went to the grocery store. And I'm walking around the grocery store, and a guy comes up behind me, and he said, I know who you are. He said, I know. I recognize you. He said, I know who you are. He said, I heard you talking. And I said, oh, Lord, how are you, sir? He said, fine. He said, listen, he said, I need a golf lesson. I said, a golf lesson? <laughs> he said, he, I said, yes, this is the truth. And I said, you would need a golf lesson, huh? I said, yeah. Why would you want a golf lesson from me? I said, listen, I'm half blind. I can't hear very well. I'm 82 years old. I've got the yips. I'm hitting the ball. I said, and I'm hitting the ball so short that you can hear it land. And I said, if you tested my swing speed, you couldn't get a ticket in a school zone. I said, I said, so, I said so when do you want to start this lesson? <laughs> this is what I told him. Yeah. So what was his reaction when you said all that? He laughed. Yeah. He laughed. He, I said, he, I said, I said, no, nah. I said, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. He said, okay, okay. <laughs> hey, Isn't that crazy? That is awesome. That is awesome. Lee, take us back a little bit to the some of the hurdles of playing the tour as a Mexican-American. As, you know, Tiger gets 
a lot of credit for for blowing the game up like he did. But man, the Curtis versus the Charlie, you know, these guys, the Lee Elders, the Lee Trevinos, you guys back in the day, man, I, I can only imagine what it what it was like, and it couldn't have been easy. No, you know what? We we didn't have. I, I never had any problem whatsoever. I was never discriminated on. The problem that I had mostly was with the media trying to get me, trying to get me to say something because at the time the PJ had just done away with the, uh, with, with, with that article in 1963, uh, the Caucasian article uh, about, uh, you know, about, uh, uh, playing. But I never had that problem, Jay. Not at all. You know what, Lee? We're going to wrap it up with this. What are you most proud of as you reflect back on your career? Oh, my God. Winning the the Open from Jack, uh, the playoff. That's what made me. That's when I arrived. Yeah, 1971. I think about it all the time. That that same Jack Nicholas finished second to you four times. And I know you know that. And I know he knows (laughs) that, more importantly. And he never finished second to me. (laughs) There you go. I, I, I never finished second to him, yeah. Hey, Lee, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to visit with you. Thank and, you uh, very much. God bless you, I appreciate you, man. it. Thanks for doing God this. God bless you. Darty Business Solutions has been enhancing the business of our customers for the last 37 years. How do we do it? Through our expertise in technology, better use of data and analytics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. We roll up our sleeves and collaborate. We build applications and effectively communicate with our partner clients to bring their goals and objectives to the finish line. Our award-winning Access Point program is a community game changer. With nearly 100 students in the program, mostly young African-American females are making between $55,000 and $60,000 per year right out of high school. That's right, fifty-five dollars to $60,000 a year right after high school graduation. That's when they begin their training. CEO Ron Darty believes the talent is equally distributed, but access to that opportunity is not. So here's Access Point, providing more and more opportunity for those in and around our community. It's Darty Business Solutions. Get ready to watch the legends of golf up close when they compete at historic Norwood Hills Country Club right here in St. Louis. The Ascension Charity Classic will be back again with some of golf's biggest names. Steve Stricker, Padre Harrington, John Daly, David Duvall, Bernard Longer, Ernie Els, and more will return September 3rd through the 8th at Norwood Hills. All tournament proceeds go to area charities serving North St. Louis County youth and families. Sponsorship opportunities, pro-am foursomes, and more information available for you at ascensioncharityclassic.com. Are you driving an out-of-warranty car? It's only a matter of time before your out-of-warranty vehicle is in the shop costing you thousands of dollars. Auto repair costs are up nearly 20% from last year, which is four times the rate of inflation. If an unexpected breakdown happened today, would you be ready for that? Well, now you can be with a plan through CarShield. Even if your car is just over three years old, it's still prone to expensive costs. Your car is more than just getting you from point A to point B. Traveling by car is a way of life. From picking up your kids to going to a new restaurant, cars are a daily essential. When you enroll in a car protection plan through CarShield, you can look forward to the following. The price will never go up no matter how many claims you file or no matter how high the mileage on your car increases. 
CarShield offers protection plans that start as low as $100 per month. That's $100 per month. They have repair coverage for up to 5,000 different parts of your vehicle. Plus, when your car breaks down and you're stuck on the side of the road, you get 24-7 coast-to-coast roadside assistance. You also get complimentary towing and rental car options. CarShield has my back when my car breaks down, and they can have yours too. Call CarShield today at 800-465-6550 or visit carshield.com. It's CarShield, proud sponsor of the Golf with Jay Delsing Show. This is Chris Nagel. And you're listening to Golf with Jay Delsing. If you're in the market for a new or used vehicle, any maker model, then you need to visit the Dean Team Volkswagen of Kirkwood. They are the official vehicle provider of the Golf with Jay Delsing show. My daughter and I both drive vehicles supplied by Colin and the Dean Team Volkswagen of Kirkwood. And the reason we have them is because we know we can trust them. They made the car buying experience painless and very easy. Their customer service is second to none. They provided my daughter with a loaner car when her Passat needed repairs. Every single step of the car buying experience was taken care of for us. You can reach Colin at 314-966-0303 and he will answer all of your questions and put your mind at ease. The Dean Team Volkswagen of Kirkwood has new or pre-owned vehicles to be purchased or leased, whichever you prefer. Once you visit the Dean Team Volkswagen on Manchester and Kirkwood, you'll become a customer for life because they'll treat you like family. The Dean Team Volkswagen of Kirkwood, the official vehicle provider of the Golf with Jay Delsing show. Happy New Year's, everyone. This is Golf with Jay Delsing, and along with Jay Delsing, I'm Dan McLaughlin. It's a best-of show as we give you some of the best interviews we've had over the past year. Gary McCord, former PGA Tour player, and he played in over 400 PGA Tour events. And that was impressive in itself, but really made his mark in broadcasting as one of the great analysts the sport has ever seen. And I know, Jay, we've been looking forward to this visit for a long time and getting Gary McCord on Beyond the Fairways. No, absolutely. I, I Gary, I so appreciate you joining us and, and getting to – we haven't connected in quite a while, but getting – you've come to St. Louis and done charity events with me and, and, and um, just – just getting to reconnect is just a treat. Yeah, it's good to hear from you guys. Everything good? Couldn't be much better. We don't have the weather in Arizona where you're based out of, so we're looking forward to spring. We're looking forward to summer. Yeah, we're looking forward to spring too. We've been it's been cold here. I mean, for Arizona, it's been really cold. So anyway, starting start to warm up, so things are getting good. Yeah. So Gary, tell everybody, just give us a little idea of what's going on with you and how you're spending most of your time these days. Well, we've got. Uh, you know, you, you got to stay busy when you're 100 years old like I am, or you just kind of lose lose all fate with with uh, life. So I we started. Uh, Peter Costas and I have a uh, podcast uh, called Costas and McCord off the rockers that we're doing. It's kind of fun, you know. You stay you stay current. You got to study a little bit and, and talk to people and uh, and do things. So that that's been that's been fun to put all this together. We've only been out there for like three weeks. And so that's uh, kind of what I'm I'm doing now, playing some golf, doing still doing golf outings and stuff, and you know just, just staying busy like you guys. Well, Masters Week is here, and you had a unique experience when it comes to the Masters. 
uh, as a broadcaster. Can you tell our listeners what happened and what that was like for you? Well, I started uh, started Augusta doing the Masters in 1986 for CBS. It was my first year. Jim Nance had just come aboard, too, so he and I were kind of new together at, at Augusta. It was interesting, the, um, the do's and the don'ts when they meet with you and what you can do and what you can't do. As Jay knows, I probably wasn't the... <laughs> and it was just after the first meeting it was just kind of a matter of time we didn't know when so but it lasted you know i lasted for like for like eight years through 1994 when i finally put down uh, euthanized i guess you could say <laughs> and um i just you know i i i hate cliches i just i, I can't stand it so what I what I try to do in the broadcast business is I you know I take a I take a saying that everybody uses and I I just said literally rewrite it a hundred times said so whatever it was like you know it came up short and you know rewrite it or oh he's dead there tag on his toe he's on the slab he's in a body bag you know just <laughs> something just keep fresh and that was the one thing that I was told when I started the business that would it would be best if you kept fresh fresh meaning don't if you're predictable what you're going to say in that business uh, you're not going to last very long so that's kind of what i did and um i used a couple of those cliches <laughs> um it was over the green i was on the 17th hole and if you hit it jay you know if you hit it over the green on 17 and the pins back right there's nothing you know everybody <laughs> says you're dead down there so i said oh you know he's got a tag on his toe or he's in the slabbers in a body bag uh, they didn't like that. Finally, it was Jose Maria Olazabal, who was leading the golf tournament. He won the golf tournament that year in 94. And he was out there in the fairway, and the pin was in the same position. And we went to a commercial break. And I, up in the tower, to stay fresh like that, I, I had magazines. Um, <laughs> before we could actually get, you know, our computers, we could get up there and, and get, get a signal. And uh, I had second magazines all the time. I mean, from Mad Magazine to Scientific American. And I just go rattle through them during commercial breaks, not to read anything, but just pick up words, right? And then words go clanking around in my head, and then it comes out some way. So I was, I was reading that time, I was reading the magazine, uh, People Magazine, about, I live in Escondido, California, used to. And uh, they had a spa there named the Golden Door, very expensive spa and uh they had a, it was a menu of things that you could get done uh, <laughs> something with cucumbers you put in your eyes right seaweed wraps and and bikini waxes and stuff so bikini wax oh, that's interesting so you know jose hit the ball on the wrong side of the green there and he had nothing on the putt it was just a big old sweeper and when it started down it wasn't gonna stop and I said, I, you know, I, these guys are afraid of these greens. I, in fact, I don't think they mow them. I think the bikini wax them, you know, and he hit it 12 feet by the hole. And that was that. And then a couple of three or four days later, um, that was it. Wow. <laughs> Find something else to do that week every year. So that's, Gary, uh, that's Gary, kind of what happened. Wasn't it, wasn't it the letter that Tom Watson wrote that really kind of started the ball rolling? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think at that point Masters had anything to do with it until they got a letter and so they sent that somehow frank got the letter frank chicanian our producer director got the letter he gave it to me at hilton had the next week and it was in pencil and i go what's this and he goes well i said I wrote a letter to, to augusta or to us and he goes i think to augusta 
And he said, they just sent it on to me. And I went, oh, this is not good, is it, Frank? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, nothing happened for like three days. And then he called me back in the office and he goes, okay, now, now all of a sudden the storm started. And that was it. And um, so that, then it was just, you know, at that point, CBS, that is their, that is their, their big uh, product is, is Augusta. I mean, it's as big as anything they have in, in their arsenal of, uh, of sports. So they're not going to protect a stupid announcer in any way, shape, or form politically. So I really had to fight the fight myself and try not to get, you know, totally fired from CBS. So it was an interesting, not a fight, but it was an interesting survival class to figure out how to, you know, I got kicked out of the biggest tournament in front of the most people. And now I'm going to keep working for CBS and with that lingering over your head. So it was interesting that that whole thing was very, very interesting to uh, go through that landmine, a landmine of of that field of landmines to try to figure out how to do this whole thing with zero help from from anybody. Frank says, I can't help you. The president told me he can't help. So that, that was that was interesting. That was a hell of a class right there. And, and you had some words with Tom. I forget what tournament we were playing in, but I remember a little bit of that. Yeah, I was at, um, we were registering at. Um, Is it a Pebble? Yeah. And uh, we came in on the same charter flight and he was there and he was in front of me <laughs> getting in line. And so I decided we're, that's enough. We're going to talk about this. So we went over to the corner there and uh, yelled a little bit at each other. So <laughs> that, that was it. We got each, each of us got our, got our say in and, uh, we went on our way. We're, we're fine. We're fine. I'm so curious because your personality came across on the television for all the viewers every Saturday and Sunday, and it was great. It brought the average fan into the game with uh, some humor, with educational points of the game of golf. And back to the Masters for a bit, did did that bother you because of their unique rules that all of a sudden you couldn't show off your personality? No, that was what, it was one of the things on my list that I had to, you know, to cope with was to, do I change uh, because of that? And how do you go forward f- from there? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be who I am. That's why Frank hired me. So, you know, I'm going to keep doing the same things. Uh, study, try to stay fresh, make sure, you know, you know, the players, um, and try to communicate with the people in, you know, short bursts, five-second intervals, paint the picture fast and get out. And and, uh, and that was it. So I just I just stuck with that and tried to stay above that fray, and that was it. And then at the end, I do remember, at the end, you know, this, the whole woke thing kind of, I know Barkley and I have talked about it, Charles Barkley and I have talked about it a bunch. I got to a point where I was editing myself as I was speaking, which is not a good situation. Because <laughs> um, how it would come out before it was just, you just fire, right? You just go. And uh, then you, you edited everything you were about ready to say to see who would offend. That got a little cumbersome um, as far as communications. And I know Charles is the same thing. And that's, he was going to quit. When he was 60, he, was, he said he'd had enough, of course, and then they offered him because he met with Greg Norman about doing the live thing. They gave him a $200 million contract, and Charles didn't quit. So uh, no one offered me that. So, uh, <laughs> that would make I you unretire right away, man. I mean, what yeah, the hell kind of money? 
Gary, what was it like? You know, Cherkanian, he was such a character. And I can remember he would ride the golf course every, you know, while we're playing Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. And he was such a fun, colorful guy. But behind the scenes and behind the, the television, there's some really crazy stories with Frank. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole group was crazy. It was quite a learning process. I was still playing. I wasn't, I wasn't going to... You know, I had no no uh, uh, future plans of doing television. I think it was just a happen chance deal, meeting with Frank. I remember <laughs> the first time that um, I'd ask him if if I could come and watch. I was on the policy board, nineteen eighty. When did I start the policy board? Eighty three or something to about eighty seven. I was one of the three player directors, and I remember at CBS where I was on an airplane with him. I asked Frank if I could come into the trucks and watch him do a a televised event. It was a memorial. I didn't know anything about television, but I'm making decisions, you know, as to contracts with CBS at that point, ESPN, ABC. And I didn't know anything about television. I just wanted to watch, see what happens and how they do it, and get a, you know, get an idea. So he goes, yeah, I and I played a lot on the tour, didn't make a whole lot of money. So I was semi broke. And I asked, I said, can I stay in the, uh, your hotel there? And I, he said, yeah, yeah, come on, check in. I'll, I'll put you up there. So I went out there the first day. And he said, we have we have meetings at night, production meetings at night. Uh, okay, I, you need to go to the production meeting. Was, okay. So it was in the bar at the hotel. <laughs> and, um, and so then we, we went in the bar, and then we went to dinner, and I was sitting next to Pat Summerall. And these guys were all lighting up and everything. You know, I was still playing. I'm, you know, I'm grinding them. Trying to you know trying to hit four irons up in the air with a little cut, and um, we're eating we're eating all of a sudden I'm sitting next to summer all of a sudden we're you know we're eating the salad, and uh, he's he's got uh, he's got rope for dressing on the salad all of a sudden he goes face first in his salad just boom and I'm sitting next to him I'm looking over and he's he's in the his face is in the salad he's not moving and I'm like God what the hell and everybody keeps talking like it's nothing. So finally, I'm sitting there. He said he's drowning in the rope for dressing. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm brand new there. So all of a sudden, Ben Wright comes around the thing and, and grabs his head, pulls him out of the salad, wipes his face off, and walks him up to the to the elevator, takes him to his room, puts him to bed, comes back, and they just keep talking. No one said a word. <laughs> but what the hell is Unbelievable. this? Unbelievable. What just happened? You know, and that was my first first time there working with them when I was playing, and I thought that was interesting. They lived hard. They lived very, very hard. So then, you know, I started to work for them and play, and then you've got to draw a line at some point, right? That job looked pretty good, so it kind of morphed into me quitting and, and playing. But it was to, to work under Frank. He was the leader of the pack. He started everything in television and, and knew what he was doing, and, and you did it his way, and that was the only way. But it was a great way to learn the business. Gary, you know so many of the players that have made a jump to LIV, and they're going to have a chance now to come back and play in the Masters. I'm curious, what do you think about that? Well, I, th- I think it's going to be very interesting. I'd love to be part of that Champions Dinner uh, that they have. That that should be uh, – the, the seating arrangements should be fantastic. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Somebody asked me the other day, "What would you do I, if you know if you if you wanted you had to throw the party?" I said, "I think it's pretty easy. They've all got courtesy cars. You go over to Chick Fil A. Everybody goes to Chick Fil A, gets their order, parks in the parking lot, 
you uh, lock the door and roll down the windows and you can eat your Chick-fil-A and, and talk to who you want and the doors are locked so somebody come and can't get you. So that would be the way I would do it. Wouldn't have any problem and you didn't want to talk to anybody, you don't. <laughs> so, I, you know, the other part of this too is now LIV is off and running. What do you think about it? Do you think it survives? Do you like it? What's your, your opinion on the Live Tour? Yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with those guys. Um, we have 35 tour pros out at the uh, uh, golf course I belong to in Scottsdale. So I, I see these guys all the time. I was talking to one the other day, just seeing I for about an hour and a half about the whole deal, what he thinks is going coming on. And, you know, you, you first of all, you look at the money and you always follow the money. And money says they're going to be there for a while. So they're going to find their way. It's going really slow at this point. Uh, OWGR is the only thing that obviously is holding them back, which is the world golf ranking points uh, to get them in any kind of tournaments consistently. That's going to be the big deal, the big hurdle. They'll be there. They, I, they tried to get me to come on and do the, uh, I talked to Norman a couple, three times. He told me that they're, they're going first year was going to be eight tournaments then 14 and then 23. And um, they're going to get a TV network. He didn't know at that point who it was or anything, but, so you know they're just they're just starting they're creating things they've they've created quite quite a rise in purses all over all over the world especially the DP tour and our tour considerable amount of money has uh, reorganized itself and got to the players' hands uh, because of that so I I think most of the players on the PGA tour are quite thankful for for live and and uh, jacking their purses up. Uh, as you've seen quite a bit. So it, it's something that nothing's going to get done, I don't think, other than the courtroom. Probably will take seven to ten years. I had excellent litigation of this type. Uh, we've already seen what's happened. They deposed uh, Ramiyama, <clears throat> Al Ramiyama, the guy that runs the PIF over in, in um, Saudi Arabia, and he won't show up over here, the judge in San Jose. So that's because they they claim sovereignty, so now you now we're, we've got you know world world views coming into to focus on the, your law against our law and what's going to happen. It's going to be a mess. It's absolutely going to be a mess. Nothing's going to happen. I think that we probably need the leaders of these larger tours need to either step aside or, or do something. But we need a little bit of uh, probably arbitration in this whole thing to to get them a, a better a better view of the situation. I don't know how long the golfing public is going to sit around and listen to court proceedings and um, the litigious nature of this whole thing. I think that could get a little little busy. They're going to be around. When you've got $670 billion in a public trust fund and, and you're committed through 2030 uh, to use golf as, as one of your uh, tools to um, pursue um, your stature in the world and the way they look at you. So, and they have the money and they, they have the concept. They're, they're going to be there. So I think we everybody's got to deal with that. When it comes to Greg, Greg Norman, you know, he was a lead analyst for us at Fox for just a minute. And I, I've, I've played with him a couple of times. I, I always liked him. He's got a much more personality than he shows a lot of times. But this... This just reeks so much of his ego to me, man, and it just bothers me. Yeah, I mean, this is not the first time he's done this. Uh, this is the first time he's done this with a big wallet. You know, he's, he's always had a, with the tour, that they weren't getting fair treatment. And that basically is Australia, um, and he's the one that saw the Ryder Cup, and then he's the one that 
he's the one that pushed for the uh, President's Cup to get the rest of the world involved in something like that. So he's been instrumental in an aggravated way uh, about expanding expanding the tour to the world, not just the United States. So, yeah, he he's the spoon that stirring most of this stuff. It's going to be hard, I think, politically, in my opinion, to get anything done with him at the at the realm there. Maybe cooler heads will come in and and we can get some kind of some kind of meshing of, of all these different tours into a, a world tour to uh, use the use basically use the talent that we have around the world in a more productive way. I love it when Gary McCord pops up in a movie. How did acting or your appearance in movies come about? I was home and, and I got uh, my agent called me and said, "Listen, I got a I got a movie script here, and um, they want you to take a look at. It. They want you to be a part of it as a technical director and actor and um, help with the help with everything in the movie about golf." Uh, what he goes? Yeah, he said, "I'll send it to you." So I got this uh, script. And on the, it's a cover letter on the front. It says Warner Brothers. It says a movie, uh, working title. It's called Tin Cup. The bar Watch scene out. is great. When Kevin Costner, you know, and they, they have the uh, the bet, and you're sitting there doing the uh, the play-by-play, or at least the analyst work. I can't remember what you grabbed for your microphone, but that is the best. <laughs> oh, that was, yeah. You know, when I, when I read when I read the damn script, when you when you get a script and you're in it, they tell you you're in it. The first thing you do is you go through a script real fast to see how many times your name's mentioned, you know, <laughs> line. Uh, because, you know, if you're in there like twice in a, in a script, I think that the script was 40, 43 pages. Wow. I think. And I was in there a lot, you know, with a lot of stuff. And I went, okay, well, shit, I'm like, let me read this. <laughs> so I read it and I was reading and I go, well, I did a lot of these things. And I go, how the hell would he know I did these things? Or they just somehow wrote wrote this script and it coincided with what I did. And I, Pelican scene was, oh, Jay, you'll remember this. We were in, um, he might not have been on the tour then. We were in Pensacola playing the uh, Pensacola Open. Perdido Bay. What? Was, yeah, was, yeah, play there. Yep. yeah. And we were in a, um, a condo and it was a rain out the whole day. It was just an absolute deluge. And you really couldn't even go outside. So there's me, John Schroeder, Bill Calfee. You know, we're all sharing a room trying to cut cut expenses down. We were on an inlet there. And we had a wharf out there. And we were playing gin. And I go to the back, my back bedroom. I take a leak or something. I don't know what I was doing. And my clubs were back there and everything. I start to walk out back down the hallway. And I look and a pelican landed on, on the wharf out there. And I looked, and I had my bag there and a bunch of balls. And I go, hey, guys, give me 10 shots, and I'll bet you I can knock that pelican off his perch. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I got to open the doors. I got back there, and I I looked at this thing. Man, this thing got higher. It was probably 150 yards. But I had to hit it through a hallway, through the living room, open the sliding glass doors, get it through that, get it over a wooden railing, and then get it out, you know, towards towards the inlet there, the canal. I'm back there and I'm going now. I'm thinking, God, I can't. I got to hit down on this thing. I can't take a divot. I'm going to ruin the carpet. I'm going to pay for it. And if I pull it, I'm going to hit the sliding glass door, which is going to be a lot of money. My God, this shot got really hard. So I hit this thing and I picked it 
and I <laughs> and I went to the hallway and I went to the living room and just missed the sliding glass doors because you got to cut a little bit to put some spin on. And I looked at this going right at this damn bird. They're all looking, and I went right up, right over the top of his head, about a foot over his head. He flew off the deal, and I went nuts. Probably the best shot I ever had in my life. I did that. We were screwing around there, and there was no social media then. This was back in the early '90s. So all of a sudden, you know, it's it's in the movie. And I go, so I called, and the other one was, I made a, you remember the old, um, in Memphis, did you play uh, Colonial? Colonial Country? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you remember the 16th hole? You had to hit it over the trees and lay it up short of the water. Oh, yeah. The island green. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I hit it over there, and I had, it was on a Friday. I had to make the cut, and I had to birdie two of the last three, so. I was in that know, situation I, a I got, lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, I hit it over there and I had a four iron left in my second shot and I killed it. Perfect. And it hits the pilings in the front, bounce in the water. My caddy starts to walk down to the drop area by the green. I said, no, 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 give me the ball. Cause I'm now I'm done. I can't give me a ball. I can do this. So seven balls later, <laughs> four irons, and my caddy comes up to me. He's got a golf ball in his left hand and another club in the other hand. <laughs> I was obviously pissed. And I said, I got nose to nose with him. I said, what is this for? Pointing to the three iron he gave me. He says, this is the last ball you got. And, you know, the worst thing is, you know, you can't, you can't run out of balls. You can't, you can't do, you can't do a rob um, because the boys will get you next week. So I hit the three iron, hit it on, made a 45 footer for 16. So (laughs) that was that scene in the movie too. And I, I called my agent. I said, if this is all true, Call Ron Shelton up, and I need to talk to him. So I get a hold of Ron Shelton. I think it was that day. And I said, where the hell did you get this? And he goes, well, you did it. I said, yeah, but no one knows I did that. It was, you know, 100 years ago, there was no way in any communication. He says, yeah, I read it in Golf Week. I said, what you read in Golf Week? He said, about the 16. And I like that. I like the idea. He kept going for it. <laughs> I'm missing a cut anyway, right? It didn't matter. And uh, the Pelican was, he had heard that somewhere. And so I said, okay, if, if you're serious about doing this, why don't you come on? Let's talk about it. You know, I was just testing him. You know, I knew who he was. Obviously, he was a superstar in the, in the business. He, he flew in. He got Kevin Costner's airplane. And he flew in, and, and we we went hiking and, and had cocktails every night and had a ball. And I said, yeah, I'll do this. This will be fun. So it was. It was a ball. It was three months. And, uh, you know, in the inside of that whole thing and then helped produce with Gary Foster, who did it. And it was, it was great. Fantastic. I can remember when it first came out, Gary, and it was so, you know, golf hadn't, we really hadn't had the Tiger effect yet. And it was so much fun to see everybody on the big screen. Fun part was when you go to the openings. You know, the red carpet deal and you're in New York and stuff. I was a menace to society on those openings coming down the, the, the red carpet. I made uh, Kevin walk in front of me. <laughs> yeah, you get up there. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll stay I'll stay back here. I'm the last guy in. Yeah, it, it was a great experience. And it was, it was a busy time. I was playing. I was doing a bunch of golf outings. And that took three months to shoot. So I was flying all over the place. Hey, Gary, Jay was telling me about, and, and I want to find out if these stories are true. One I, I read about, which is you got a, in, a, in a fist fight 
on the course. And the other one, Jay, was telling me about was you splitting your pants on the course and uh, no underwear was being worn. So <laughs> we got to find out if this is true on those two stories. This fight, no. I'm, there's no way in the world okay. I got in a fight. Okay. I, I couldn't win a fight. Uh, so no, I never, I, I was congenial. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't aggressive. The pants. Yeah. That was in Memphis. You know, when you're going bad, all you're doing is going <laughs> and, going. and you, you lose where you are in time and space and you lose doing your laundry. <laughs> and I, had, at this point, probably two to three days of, um, of going um, commando, and it was just you know it was the lay of the land. I just I mean I was you know, practicing all day. It's, we're in Memphis. It was hotter than hell. Last thing I wanted to do is go and sit in a laundry room somewhere and do my laundry. And I I should have just. But anyway, I didn't have. And I had some. I'll never forget the pants. There were cotton pants, and they were plaid. It was you know we were in the Johnny Miller era, so everybody was plaid. It was cotton. And I'm playing, and um, I get out there, and I mean, it is Tarzan hot out there. And I've been down on about the sixth hole, way away from the clubhouse, fifth hole, something like that in Memphis. I heard a rip started. I went down, got behind the ball, squat down to see the line, and it started to rip, and it ripped from the top of my fly, underneath, all the way down, all the way around and back up to where the belt loops are. Just blew it up. <laughs> And now I, I uh, ah, so I put, you know, obviously there's people out there watching. I put my legs together. I tell them, hey, come here, come here. I said, give, give me my rain pants. I said, I've had an accident here. He goes, what? I go, I split my pants. Get my rain gear. He goes, I ain't got your rain gear. They're in the, you know, the caddies when it's 100,000 degrees, there's nothing that bad. So they, all they got at the golf balls. They take everything out. And I go, you don't, he said, no, they're in my car. Put them in my car. And Caddy parking lot, which is what ten miles away from where where we are. So I go, no, no, now I got a problem. And I I'm looking around. What am I going to do? I can't I can't take a step. I can't do. I surely can't get behind the ball and look at the line. I mean, it's so I I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm looking around. I'm looking around. I'm what do I do? I'm playing with Rod Curl, a win to Indian, one hundred percent win to Indian. Okay. I got an idea, so I had one towel left. I told them, Can you give me the, just give me the towel. So I got the towel and, and, and put it like a loincloth, you know, tucked it in the front of my belt. I said, go get another towel. You know, they take stuff out of the bag. There's, there's only a one towel, you know, to wash the golf balls. And I said, go to the other guys and beg for another towel. And so he goes, I see talking to the other caddies. And one caddy got in his bag, and he actually had another towel, thank goodness. So I put that, and I put it behind me and tucked it in. So now I've got two towels as loincloths. And my golf swing at that time was I had a, I was, I had a very close position at the top of the club face. So when you do that, you have to have a lot of lateral slide to block the toe from flipping over and duck hooks. Yeah, I wasn't very good. I was just out there slapping around. So I get and we I go down to putt. It was perfect. A one class hide and everything. I go to the next tee and I took you know a couple practice swings. Man, that towel's flying all over the place. <laughs> this is Hilarious. I had to really quiet my lower body down to hit a golf ball. Like just standing there and not doing anything. You just give it a whack, right? Well, I see three under the front. <laughs> uh, and my caddy goes at the turn, he goes, 
he goes, all right. He says, I'll stall. There's the pro shop is right there. Go in and get you some pants, and uh, and we'll go. And I go, nope. I said, I got something going here with these loincloths. As anyway, I shot sixty-seven. I shot sixty-seven. Probably was the greatest lesson I ever had in golf, and got the idea that you know I got to quit doing what I was doing before because my plant pants split because I refused to do my laundry. So that's that story, and that's true. But no, I never hit anybody on a golf course. <laughs> good, good uh, answer on that one. I'm I'm happy to hear that, Jaybird. Hey, hey, Gary. How's Phil Mickelson doing? I know you guys are tight. Man, don't know. Don't know. We're at our at our club. All of the, the members that are really good players were all part of his golf team. His buddies, really good buddies. They have not heard from him in two years. Not one of them. Not one of them. His caddy is out there as a member, and uh, he's not caddying for him anymore. He used to be. Uh, he hasn't heard much. I mean, he's he's really kind of dissolved all of the relationships that he had prior and i mean just literally literally off the face of the earth we haven't seen him nobody's talked to him his best i play golf with his best friend all the time he hasn't heard anything from him in two years he's he's made a decision and and um and i, I can't really i can't bring you up on anything because i don't know anything mm. i i you know gary i just hate that because the, the the guy's so talented and he was so fun it just almost seems like something got so out of hand i don't know if the personal finance, you know, you hear all these stories because we don't know anymore. I just hate it. Yeah, we don't. There's a there's an interesting book that's going to be coming out, written by um, written by Billy Walters. Oh, okay. You know Billy Walters is the gambler from Vegas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Billy's Billy's the probably the greatest gambler of our generation, and probably most generations. Um, and you know, he and Phil were really tight. Billy's a, a good friend of mine. He's got a book coming out. It's supposed to come out the day before. I was going to have him on the show. It was the day before the the uh, Super Bowl. The lawyers are still looking over this, <laughs> looking over the content for defamation and so forth. Because Billy's a character, and he's you know grew up in Vegas around the boys and stuff. And Phil was part of this uh, of Billy going to to prison for the insider trading. And Billy kind of blames Phil for for that for him going. So. Shouldn't be too complimentary <laughs> on Phil, uh, but this book should be really, really interesting. Uh, I can't, the only book I think I've ever in my lifetime I'm just dying to read about any and everything about his way of life. And Phil is a big part of it. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe that'll throw some light on it. But as we know it, there was, you know, the only thing I can tell you that he was going to, Phil was going to go to CBS and then be the announced, uh, the lead analyst at CBS. And then he won the PGA championship. So that might have changed a little bit. But he had a red carpet right, right to CBS and, and doing that. And, you know, we talked about that a bunch, his brand. Uh, when he's on every week and he is the authority and he, Jay, as you know, he, he would have been really, really good mm -hmm. at uh, being an analyst because he's got a lot of BS. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. BS are fantastic. One of the best, one of world-class and he would have been great up there in the tower. So he had every, everything in front of him, you know, right after the win at 51 of the PJ championship. And then, you know, the red carpet right into the, to, you know, one of the great positions of all time, right next to Jimmy Nance. So that whole the whole thing is just, it blew up so fast and it got so acrimonious so fast. Interesting. The whole play was interesting. 
Gary, I, I can imagine that you have all different walks of life that want to play a round of golf with Gary McCord. So I, I'm curious about who's been the most interesting for you. You've had actors like Clint Eastwood. You've had great players in the game of golf. You've had probably other sports figures that say, man, I'd love to play a round of golf with you. Who's been the most interesting, though, for you? Jay knows this guy. Not many people know this guy, but but he's he's one of my dear friends in life and this guy's story is is beyond comprehension the the stuff this guy has done his name is johnny jacobs and jj uh jay you know you know who jj is yes um <laughs> uh, he's still alive i don't know how he's still alive it's impossible I, I, that he's still alive so who is jj absolutely let's put it this way um john daly John Daly's idol in life was Johnny Jacobs. Yeah. That ought to give you some idea wow. of uh, of where this is. But he he's legendary. I mean, and legendary. And uh, we've done a we've done a couple of things. Uh, when I was working for Sirius Radio, BJ Tour Radio, I had JJ on just to tell stories. And I get a phone call after the first round from the CEO of Sirius. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble here. What did I do? And he goes, who was that guy? And I go, he's a buddy of mine. He's kind of a legend in the legend in golf, but no one really knows him. And he goes, I want him on every week. <laughs> I go, I know everybody does. <laughs> but you can't find him. And he's, you know, he's over here and he's over there and he's dodging people and stuff like that. So he, Johnny, I think, is, was he he and I, we play, we play golf together every day when he lived in Arizona here. And it was, uh, you, you know, I, I can't. He's, he's a, one of my dear friends and he's nuts. And he is freaking nuts so he would he would be the guy bill murray was right there bill was i, I watched an amazement bill could do stand up for five and a half six hours while he's doing doing the pro-am and never never use the same line never use the same uh, comedic uh, uh experience uh he would just come up with this stuff constantly and it was amazing of the energy and so forth. The, the, those two, those two guys have probably got it. I remember Roger Maltby, who was such a good guy as well, telling me a story about driving down the 405 freeway in the back seat sleeping, and JJ gets pulled over on the side of the road, and he thinks he's still driving. And a cop walks up and taps on the window. And JJ's working the wheel like he's still driving. That story is true. It can go for twenty minutes. Um, they were down and they're on the 405 freeway and they were going to SC. JJ went to SC. He went to enroll. He went there for two days. Um, <laughs> of course and, he did. And they're coming back on the road and there's JJ's. There's three guys in the car and JJ's buddy. One of them was George Shortridge. He was passed out leaning against the right window and um, nicknamed Luke. His name, everybody called him Luke. Everybody in San Diego called everybody Luke never by their first name and it was jj's best buddy and this is a guy that jj learned how to live life from okay so you can understand that luke's a little screwed up <laughs> and luke was driving and jj was passed out in the back seat and they're coming back from his enrollment and they played golf at sc and then they came they were driving back on the san diego freeway and the last thing JJ remembers was that Luke had pulled into the fast lane of the 405. So the next scene was he wakes up to this pounding 
pounding. And Johnny says he got up and he looked up and he sees George Shortridge is still passed out against the window. And Luke has got both hands on the wheel and the engine is just raging. And he's going, he's going to hear it again. He hears this knock, 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 knock hard on the, on the window. And Luke's got, takes one hand off the steering wheel and starts rolling down the window and looks out and there's a cop standing there. <laughs> And he goes, he looks at the cop and he goes, how'd you catch me? <laughs> well, he flipped it in the neutral on the fast lane of the 405 freeway somehow. And all the cars obviously were passing it. So he just gassed it as hard as he could because he couldn't catch up. But he was parked in the fast lane of the 405 freeway. <laughs> and the cop arrested all three of them for just mayhem. <laughs> And that's, I mean, that's just one of four million stories on this idiot. Hey, Gary, we, we appreciate your time so much. You've been so gracious uh, with us. The stories, I mean, we can keep going on and on, but I know Jay feels the same way. But thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. You got it, guys. You got it. Really appreciate it, Gary. Keep well and hope to see you soon. You got it, partner. See ya. Take, take care. Okay, so you know Marcone is the largest distributor of GE parts in North America. Check. You know about their support for backstoppers, first responders, and our men and women in the military. Check that also. Well, here's their latest community venture. It's called Rees Across America. This year, Marcone will place 1,000 Christmas wreaths on the grave sites of our fallen military heroes in 10 different cemeteries around the country. From Dallas to Delaware, Western New York to Houston, New Jersey to right here at Jefferson Barracks. Each of these locations and more will have wreaths delivered and respectfully placed on a gravesite. Remember the fallen, honor those who serve, and teach the next generation the value of freedom. That's the mission of the Wreaths Across America program. So join the Golf with Jay Delsing show and Marcone and sponsor a wreath, volunteer, or partner with us to support our military. Saturday, December 16th is National Wreaths Across America Day. So get involved. That's Marcone and Wreaths Across America. Hi, this is Adam Betts from Family Golf and Learning Center. At FGLC here in Kirkwood, we feature a double-decker driving range, two large grass tees with Tahoma Bermuda grass. You want to work on your short game? We have a short game area too, which features a 20,000 square foot green, three bunkers, and zoysia surrounds. Also at Family Golf and Learning Center, don't forget about our nine-hole par three course, the indoor trackman simulators, and our performance center. If you're looking for the best golf instruction, regardless of skill, we can help. Find out more at FamilyGolfOnline.com. That's FamilyGolfOnline.com. Family Golf and Learning Center. We make St. Louis better at golf. Do you remember the golden rule? I'm sure you do, but just in case it goes like this. Treat people the way that you'd like to be treated. At People's National Bank, that one statement is the cornerstone of what this bank is all about. Locally owned with 23 locations in Southern Illinois and the metropolitan St. Louis area, People's National Bank parlays a robust menu of commercial or personal banking services you could possibly need with a friendly yet hardworking Midwestern attitude. Maybe you just want to do business with a bank whose entire team lives in the same neighborhoods as we do. If you're like me and doing business with someone you trust is important to you, then People's National Bank is the bank for you. Jason Rantham, local president, is here for you to call and he'll answer any questions you may have. His personal cell is 314-974-2243. You can also find us online at peoplesnationalbank.com. 
People's National Bank is here for all of your banking needs. Hey, St. Louis, Eddie McVeigh here from Maggie O'Brien's. When you head downtown for a concert or cards or blues game, and now for the St. Louis City soccer game, please come see us at Maggie O'Brien's before and after your event. Take our shuttle to and from or stay in-house and watch your favorite team on our multiple high-def TVs. We look forward to seeing you soon at one of our two locations in Sunset Hills on South Lindbergh or downtown at the corner of Market and 20th Street. Union Station is next to us. Powers Insurance and Risk Management is a family-owned local business that's been helping our community for over 200 years. In the always confusing world of insurance, Powers Insurance provides clarity, exceptional service, and the latest in cutting-edge products to deliver the highest quality in property and casualty coverage as well as strategic planning consultation services. Powers Insurance and Risk Management will partner with you. That's right, partner with you to customize the right coverage for you and your family. Tim Davis, the Chief Operations Officer, will personally sit down and talk you through the ins and outs of your policies. They are experts at helping you control your workplace expenses and helping to guarantee the safety of you and your employees and their needs. You can visit them at powersinsurance.com. That's powersinsurance.com for all of your insurance needs. Happy New Year's, everyone. This is Golf with Jay Delsing, and along with Jay Delsing, I'm Dan McLaughlin. It's a best-of show as we give you some of the best interviews we've had over the past year. Coming to you from the Car Shield Studios, and we're presented by Darty Business Solutions. Along with Jay Delsing, I'm Dan McLaughlin, and what a privilege it is to visit with the champion of the Ascension Charity Classic a few weeks ago, and that is Steve Flesh. Steve, congratulations, and thanks for being a part of the show. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you guys for asking me. Steve, it was so great to see you. I, I don't even know where to start, man. I mean, you had your son Griffin on the bag. You, you shot... Uh, 61 the last day and let's just uh, talk a little bit about the week for you what it was like you know I didn't I didn't get in town till Wednesday I said I decided to stay home an extra uh, couple days uh, mainly because I was I'm familiar with Norwood Hills from playing it the past couple years and this time of year we've played so many events like like three and four in a row that I just was like trying to sneak a couple extra days at home but it also helps me just kind of be more refreshed when you know when tournament time comes that i'm a little better rested but i got in town wednesday and uh on the flight over um i was just thinking about my golf swing and kind of what's been going on for the with the year i've i've had a decent year but it's just been a little erratic ball striking wasn't great and uh, i just kind of was thinking and as you know from playing i was basically taking my ball flight and working backwards. Sorry, that's my horse Weimar. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like he could take, carry you off over there. That's great. He uh, he doesn't like the neighbor's dog, so he's he always warns it when it comes outside. But uh, um, I was thinking backwards, you know, like the ball flight laws. What what causes the ball to shape a certain way? And I've kind of had the same kind of a cutty wipey miss going and i just was thinking back like what's producing that and ultimately i decided i'm not getting behind the ball enough so um i just was focusing on my shoulder turn uh when i got there wednesday hit some balls 
on the range, you know, hit about two or three bags of balls and, and my path was better and the contact was better. So I had something to build on for the week. And, and ultimately that was the difference maker. I had, a, I had one of my best weeks in a couple of years striking it and, you know, and the putter showed up and that was really the difference all week. I mean, to shoot 19 under for three days, you got to make some putts and, and the putter was certainly hot, especially on Sunday. Steve, as uh, Jay alluded to, your son was on the bag. How emotional was that to have your son there on that 18th green and you finish it up and a big hug for your son? Man, Dan, it was um, it was special for a number of reasons. But one, I the main one is we hadn't won together in, in, in any capacity when he's been caddying for me. He's caddied for me dozens of times in you know professional events, whether it was you know, corn fairy tour, you know, a few years back when I was just turning 50, trying to get ready to, to play the champions tour. He's caddied for me a number of times on the champions tour because my caddy has had some back issues and had some surgery. So he was out and, and Griffin was helping out. But, but, you know, the other thing is it's kind of the year of the Stevens winning on our tour, Stricker, Auker, Ames, and myself. And, and, as we all know, Stricker's one with every family member on the bag, his wife, two daughters. I mean, you know, his brother-in-law, Mario Tiziani. I mean, he's keeping the money in the family. I got to give him credit for that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Stephen Ames and Stephen Alker both won this year with their sons on the bag. So I kind of had double the pressure. I needed to get the win for the Stevens and, the, and their sons. But at the same time, I never won with Griffin. So. The fact that we pulled it off last week, or uh, excuse me, a couple weeks ago in St. Louis was phenomenal. It was just, I'll tell you what, though, it was adding pressure to myself. When I got off to that fast start on Sunday, I was like, oh, wow, I got no excuses now. <laughs> I was so, going to ask you that, too. How do you deal with having that lead on, let's say, a back nine on that final day, and it's exactly where you're going, but you know, you, you're in control of the tournament. How do you deal with uh, the pressure of that? I guess it's a different type of pressure for you. It's good type of pressure for sure, but it's, and Jay knows this from playing competitively. When you get off to a start like that, I mean, you start having all kinds of things run through your head. You know, I'm thinking about, oh, wow, maybe this is the week that Griff and I do it. You know, I, I basically just figured if I could, if I could make two birdies on the back nine, having, I think, a three or a four shot lead at the time, that I would probably, it would probably be enough. But, you know, the other thing is my good buddy, Kevin Sutherland, who, I guess I he ended up birdie in 17 and 18 to finish three behind me. I mean, I know Kevin just from playing. He can go crazy. He he needed a part. I think the final hole at the Dick Sporting Goods tournament a few years ago to shoot 58. He made he three putted to shoot 59. And I'm you know, Kevin's one of these kind of guys who can get it going too. So I need I knew I couldn't just relax and and coast in. I knew I needed to make at least a couple birdies on the back nine to give myself some breathing room. So. It all worked out great, but at the same time, I, I think whenever you're trying to win a golf tournament, there's always an, an uneasy feeling because the whole complexion of the tournament can change with one bad swing or one bad hole. Well, Flesh, you, we've also done this to ourselves so many times where we've had you know, things so closely to our grasp and then watched it kind of flitter away with, a, with like you said, either a, you know, a poor commitment or a bad swing or, or a little combination of both. All those thoughts run through your head. Then I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll confess. I mean, you know, like on 12 or 13, I'm starting to think like, yeah, but what might I say if, you know, if we do win this about Griff after the tournament, something like, 
I'm like, dude, get off of that. Get back to what you're doing. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you got a lot of time between shots out there. And I'll admit, I started daydreaming about the aftermath if I do win. And I'm like, golly, man, you know how this works. Yep. Keep your mind on your business. And, you know, think about this maybe in an hour and a half when you're walking up 18. So uh, I'm glad it worked out. But, man, I played good. And, uh, you know, Griff and I, more than anything, had a great walk the whole week. Fleshy, talk, talk to us a little bit about the back nine there at Norwood. We've worked really hard to get the community involved, and St. Louis has responded. But as a player, to see that much hospitality, especially on the Champions Tour, is pretty cool. It, you know, it is. It's, it, it's, I think this is maybe the third or fourth year that we played there at Norwood. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm horrible with, with dates and my memory wanes at times, but every year we've been there in St. Louis, the, the community support's been fantastic. You know, it's that whole area of, I think nine, 10, uh, I think it's 13 coming back up the hill. There's always a ton of people there. And then, you know, 18's always got a lot of people around, um, you know, just supporting and actually it, St. Louis reminds me a lot of Cincinnati, basically where I'm from, northern Kentucky. I live 10 minutes from downtown Cincy, and it's they're great sports towns. And, you know, with, whether it's the Reds, the Cardinals, you know, the Bengals, the St. Louis Blues hockey, I mean, it's passionate fans. And you could tell that uh, the people of St. Louis appreciated, you know, having having the Champions Tour event there. It's great for the community, does a lot for charity and and certainly his fans of St. Louis showed out for the week and, and they have every year. So it was a, it was, it's a fun time. It's, it's a great event and Norwood Hills is a great host. So we, you know, as players, you know, we all appreciate being welcomed in such a great capacity. Steve Flesh is our guest. He's the champion of this year's Ascension charity classic. He's also a lefty. I'm curious growing up, did you try right-handed it seems like you always hear about right-handed golfers but they're natural lefties so then they go back to being a lefty so I'll, I'll just ask you how did it all come about for you i'm i'm a weirdo i'll be admit with, <laughs> I'll, I'll admit with with how it came about for me so my dad was a righty i just started playing righty because he was a righty you know and and i shot a basketball right-handed because he did i played tennis right-handed basically because that's what he did and then I realized I bat left-handed in baseball and, uh, which was my first passion. I mean, I, if I could have played baseball for a living, I would have, yes, golf turned out great, but baseball was always my passion. But I, I pitched left-handed in baseball and I batted lefty. I was forced to choose when I played in high school, whether to play golf or baseball because they're both spring sports. I chose golf naturally because I was probably a little bit better at it, but I, I didn't have a choice. I had to, I had to choose one, but I did start playing golf right-handed because of my dad too. And then we were playing with my uncle who was a lefty. Um, I was probably 12, I guess, maybe nine or uh, 11 or 12. And I just said, Hey, you know, my uncle Ken, I said, do you mind if I hit one, you hit one of your, you know, your clubs. And it was just so much easier. And I'm thinking, <laughs> all right, dad, I'm a lefty now, but uh, you know, Back that would have been, you know, back in in like nineteen the late nineteen seventies, left handed equipment wasn't readily available. I mean, and it wasn't good either. It was always like the the bottom, you know, kind of line of every company's stuff because it was like, yeah, lefties, we'll just give them something. We're not going to worry about the technology in it. But 
my grandfather was a rep for McGregor Sporting Goods. And he said, yeah, we got some Jack Nicklaus Golden Bear, you know, irons and, and woods. And he got me a set of those. And that was it, man. I was a lefty full time. But, you know, it was a challenge. And, and I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I say I'm a little weird because I don't do anything one particular way. I think I'm very ambidextrous, but I eat and write right handed. But I throw left-handed, you know, and I kick left-footed, shoot pool right-handed. I'm all messed up, <laughs> but it's, it's basically I kind of did it because that's I emulated how people did things growing up. And if they shot a basketball right-handed, I just figured I'd shoot a basketball right-handed, even if it didn't necessarily feel right. And I became pretty proficient with both hands. And I think, you know, as we all know, you got to have some good hand-eye coordination to play sports. But you know, I was blessed with good hand-eye coordination and, and being able to put the bat on the ball, the club on the ball, and uh, I was a good shooter in basketball. So I'm not claiming I was a great athlete, but, you know, for a little kid, I was pretty good. But, uh, you know, it was – a lot of fun growing up, but I ultimately decided left-handed's the way I'm going to go. Fleshy, we've had some really cool guests on the show that that talked about the way they grew up, and a lot of them, uh, especially Jack Nicholas, was talking about how as soon as the weather changed as a kid, he put the golf clubs away and got the basketball out, got the football out. It sounds like that was a little bit about you know how you grew up as well. You probably grew up the same way. Fall is football, or you know basketball. Winter's basketball. Then it came golf and tennis in the summer or what have you I, I it saddens me because i see kids nowadays that you have to basically declare your sport when you're in like early grade school you know like if you don't if you don't say hey i'm gonna be full-time soccer you get shunned because you don't get like put on select teams you don't consider to play you know play certain teams year-round baseball i'm like year-round baseball it doesn't i don't even know how you do that in kentucky because you have you have four months where you can't even go outside to you know to do anything but that's kind of the way the world is now and i i think um you know i had a niece who was a great uh a volleyball player well she blew her shoulder out when she was 16 you know because that's all she did and i just find kids growing up need to be well-rounded. They need to use all parts of their body to develop and strengthen. And when you're just declaring like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be a baseball player when I'm 12 years old. I just think you miss out on the experience of being on, you know, other teams playing other sports, you know, enjoying different things. And it's so competitive now. It just, it, it saddens me because I think kids miss out on enjoying all sports and just, you know, I think they get burnt out on one sport, but I was lucky growing up. My dad, you know, he exposed me to all of it. Uh, my family encouraged me to play it, play all of it. And I was decent at all of it. I wasn't a superstar uh, by any means, but um, I enjoyed it. And like Jack Nicholas, man, I put the clubs away in the winter because there was, you know, I didn't even think about it till we had spring tryouts for the golf team. I, I wish more, more kids were able to do that now and it wasn't forced upon them kind of in our culture how this guy's going to be the next Michael Jordan, the next Tiger Woods, the next Tom Brady. I mean, you got to, you know, we all know those, you know, you're declaring a kid the next this is an awful, an awful lot of pressure and it very rarely turns out, but that's kind of the way of the world. It's so well put. Steve Flesh is our guest, the winner of this year's Ascension Charity Classic. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're, you're kind of a late bloomer, went to the University of Kentucky. You played in a handful of professional events when you got out of there. Then you kind of bounced around on some different tours. So, number one, were you a late bloomer? And two, how did you 
get over the hump to become the player that you are today? Man, that's a good question, Dan. I, uh, when I got out of Kentucky, I only won a couple tournaments in college. I was pretty good, but you know, I, I kind of fought the driver a little bit. I, you know, I was a little erratic with it. Um, great chipper and putter because I had to be, cause I wasn't that long of a, <laughs> a hitter, you know? Um, but I got a marketing degree and I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to go to work just yet. Um, so I, I, I basically, I think I graduated in December of 91 and in Jan, like the second week of January and Jay knows about this. I decided to pay to play the Asian tour. And at that time you just, I'm not going to go through the whole history here, but I was like, I'm not going to work just yet. I'm going to pay. I think it was like $12,000 to play this Asian tour. And it basically was like signing up for a cruise. You know, you, you, all your, all your, all your hotels were paid for your flights were paid for your entry fees and 12 or 11 or 12 national opens over on the Asian tour uh, were paid for. And you just had to cover food and caddies and, and at that time, if you just had the money, you were in, you know, there was, there was some Monday qualifying, but it wasn't like there was a Q school for it at that time or not. And you basically got all these tournaments and that's, I did that for, for five years. Cause every time I came home in the fall to go to Q school, I screwed it up. You know, I couldn't get through second stage and it took me seven years to get through Q school. And then finally in 97, I got through Q school and played the, uh, you know, the, the Nike tour and, and somehow finished fourth on that money list and got my tour card and kept my card for basically, you know, 15 years and, and very lucky, very fortunate, but I wasn't ready to go to work. So I had to give golf a shot and, and I was persistent. I thought about quitting playing every November because I, you know, I, whenever you fail in golf, you all, you know, I'm, I'm a realist. I'm not a doom and gloomer all the time, but I'm certainly not lollipops and gumdrops. But, uh, you know, I just was like, you know what? I still think I'm good enough. And uh, I kept at it. And that's, you know, it, it took me seven years to get out there to play. And I would say I'm definitely a late bloomer, but I'm glad I stuck with it. I'm more of the rainbows and butterflies and unicorns over here, Flushy, <laughs> so I got you covered on that. But, but I want to talk and ask you a little bit about the Champions Tour Q School, because that's Mission Impossible. I don't know how you get through that thing. You know, and that's a product, too, of only being 78 guys each week on, on playing. There's no, you know, it's not a it's not a big field, so spots are limited for sure, but it's a tough deal. I think it's a couple, it's a couple stages. Only five get their cards, and, you know, when only five guys get your cards, it's, and it's four rounds, there's not much margin for error. It's like, it's like playing these three round events each week. I mean, it's a sprint, you know, it's not like that. It, there's such a big difference between three round tournaments and four round tournaments in terms of what you can and can't do to have a chance of winning. And the Q school is kind of that same way. It's, I mean, as you, you know, it's, it's any Q school you go to, you got to eliminate your, your mistakes and, and you got to have a great week because there's so many good players there. And, and access to the champions tour is definitely difficult. And, and, um, I just don't see it getting any easier. I mean, in my five years of, or six years, almost of playing on this tour, it's changed so much. Like my first couple years out, I thought this was the greatest tour in the world. Cause 
it was so chill, so relaxed. You got finished. There were actually guys sharing beers, you know, in like family dining, you know, after the tournaments. And now these, I'll tell you, it's these damn guys like Mike Weir, Jim Furyk, Darren Clark. I say damn because they, these guys are grinders and they work hard. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm joking, but you know, all of a sudden guys started practicing after the rounds now. And, and people are looking at them like, what are you doing, man? You're making this too serious. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, I mean, you see, it's so competitive now. VJ Singh, I mean, he still hits more balls than every, anybody, but it's just like the vibe has kind of gotten way, gotten way more serious than it was six years ago. And, I'm not saying it's bad, but man, is it way more competitive now? I mean, it's the culture has has become more PGA tour like versus easy going fun. Re, it's not a retirement tour anymore. I mean, yes, there's good money there still, but it's it's just more serious now than it was six years ago. And not not saying it's bad, but I don't think that was the intent of the tour way back when. You know, they they started the tour with Nicholas Palmer player, you know, Trevino to keep them in the game of golf. I mean, I think we're still ambassadors for the game uh, and for the PGA Tour. But at the same time, I'm like, man, it's gotten serious out there and a lot harder to win. Steve Flesh, our guest and the winner of the Ascension Charity Classic. And the name that you didn't mention was Bernard Longer. Are guys just amazed at what he's doing week in and week out? I, I don't get it. I mean, I, I <laughs> it's, he's like a cyborg. I call it, you know, I mean, he's got that, that German mentality where he's very structured, very disciplined. He's got, you know, like the Terminator type voice, all that stuff. But to do it, do what he's doing it. Is he 65 or yeah, I, 65. I, 60, I've, I've lost track, but, um, I mean, he's an anomaly. Everybody's like, oh, I hope I play till 65. I'm like, you guys have no clue what it takes to, to stay in as good a shape as he is, the discipline. I mean, he's overcome the yips, you know, a handful of times, and he's still a fantastic player. But his ball striking, I think, is is so underrated. I mean, he just – he doesn't make mistakes to where he can't get the ball up and down. He's always missing in the right spots when he misses. And – and I think that's just a credit to, you know, his game just hasn't deteriorated at the level that most most guys' games do when they get in their 50s and 60s. He's just – that's a mental discipline too. But what he's done out there is remarkable. I, it, you know, Hale Lerwin's the same way. I mean, he just kept playing the same game over and over again, and I think he's, his mental strength is what kept him competitive for so long. And you know, I don't have that mental strength. I, I fly <laughs> off the handle too easily, but you know, those guys, it's, I don't know if you can teach that. I think so much of that is in them. I mean, you can, you can go through the steps to try and learn to become a great player, but you know, not everybody has the mental fortitude to just stick with it and not get ahead of themselves and get ticked off at times and, and be patient. And those guys are just blessed with, you know, and Tiger Woods same way. I mean, mentally they're just stronger. Jack Nicholas. It's it's if you could bottle it up and sell it, I think you'd become a millionaire so quickly. But those guys, they're just they're a different breed, you know. And it's it's neat to watch. It's fun to compete against. But um, you know, you just kind of have to marvel at the success of Bernard Langer out there. It's it's crazy. 
Fleshy, you know, I don't play anymore, and I got to play this year, which was a real thrill. And I get paired the first day with Rob Labritz, great guy, and Richard Green, another great guy. But I don't know either one of these two guys, right? So I, I'm, I'm hitting third off the first hole. Well, Labritz hits it 50 yards from the green, right down the middle with that ugly green ball, yellow green ball that he's using, <laughs> you know, and and – and then Richard stands up there and just kind of hits this thing. It looks like it's going to go out there about 245 that flies the left bunker. You know, it's about 75 yards out. And I just wanted to head back to the car. Where I'm going with this is the difference. And again, I don't play, but I'm 62. They're 50 and 51. And I was like, I feel like I'm 120 compared to these guys. Yeah, it's, uh, it's strange, too, because equipment has changed so much of everything i mean i still hit it as far now as i did when i was on tour mainly because of the driver and the ball i don't think my club head speed has gone down a whole lot but i think whatever i've lost i've gotten that much help back from you know the low spinning ball and the low spinning driver and if you can i played with kenny perry on saturday in st louis he gets up on the first hole and drives it like down there where you can kick it on the green. And I'm like, dude, you're like 65. Well, no, I'm just like, he outdrove me by, by 40 yards on number one. And I'm like, I'm not that short really right. still. And, he, you know, and I'm like, he hasn't really played for two years for, you know, um, other reasons, but he's just like, he hasn't lost a step of distance at all. And it's amazing to me. And, and I get the, the argument about the ball and how far it's going when, when guys on our level are still hitting it that far, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, but um, it's a, it's a good way to stay competitive because it's just, you know, technology's out there to help you. I don't know where it ends. I don't, I'm not even going to get in and debate on the ball and all that, but it's uh it's a wild deal anymore how far guys are still hitting it at 50 years old and and more. It's, I mean, as you know, think how far we're still hitting it. What are those gorillas on tour doing? Well, that's I mean, where I it's really, insane. It, it's, it's a joke. I mean, I, I just, I was watching some golf with a buddy and we're watching the 18th hole at, at Southwind in Memphis where we played a ton of times, you and I, Jay, and, and they're hitting it over the trees on the left down there 50 yards from the green. And I'm like, that is nuts. And they're not even thinking twice about where they're aiming that ball. And it's, it's just a different game. I can't say I like it more because I loved when the ball spun and curved and, you know, it, you had to manage your way around the golf course. Now there's kind of no thought because, you know, I don't even consider a three wood off the tee anymore unless I'm just running out of distance because I don't hit a three wood straighter than my driver. You know, it's, it's, you might as well get it as close to the green as possible. And I just, I thought the old game of golf, and I'm not going to go down back in the day. (laughs) When we walked to school in the snow and all that. Yeah. Right. Both uphill, both ways. I just think it was, I just think the game had more nuance to it years ago, where now it's just kind of like, it's like a boxing match. You just keep throwing punches and the last guy standing, you know, you still got to putt good, but. I just don't think there's a whole lot of nuance to the game where balls get in trouble as quickly. The wind doesn't affect it now. And you know, it's not that the game's worse. I just don't think that there's as much creativity now playing. Now, having said that, 
Tiger Woods still played like we did in the old days. He, you know, he curved the ball. He used the spinniest ball out there. He hit different shots, different trajectories. And I just don't see the guys doing that nowadays as much as we had to in the past. And I think that's the allure of the game and the beauty of the game that's kind of been lost with the equipment. Well, Steve, this has been a great visit with you, and congratulations on winning the Ascension Charity Classic and looking forward to seeing you back in St. Louis next year. Well, Dan, I can't wait, and uh, I love St. Louis. I can't wait to come back, and I appreciate uh, everything that Ascension does and you guys do for the tournament, and uh, I'm honored to be the champion this year. So definitely Griffin and I are enjoying are enjoying the uh uh, what do you call it? The celebration still of having won. <laughs> That's great. Good luck the rest of the year, buddy. We're pulling for you here. Thank you, Jay and Dan. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. That's Steve Flesh, the champion of the 2023 Ascension Charity Classic. And we're presented by Darty Business Solutions. Hey, this is Jay Delsing. And we golfers are always looking for ways to improve our games. For me, that means I want the very best and the very latest in equipment, and in technology. The place for me is Pro-Am Golf in Brentwood. Tom DeGrand opened Pro-Am Golf Center in 1975, and ever since then, he and his family have provided St. Louis with the finest in golf equipment, instruction, and the latest in the ever-changing world of golf technology. Whether you are a scratch golfer looking to find the latest in range finders, or a newcomer looking to find your first set of clubs, Pro-Am Golf has just what you're looking for. You say you're looking to get yourself custom fitted for a new set of clubs, you need to call TJ. He has fit me personally and he is the best in town. If you mention my name, CJ will take 50% off the already low fitting price. So if you need anything from golf balls to a new pair of shoes or a lesson from Tom, who by the way, has been helping St. Louisans play better golf for over 45 years, Pro-Am Golf in Brentwood is the place for you. You can also visit them at ProAmUSA.com. That's Pro-Am Golf. Hi, this is Adam Betts from Family Golf and Learning Center. You're listening to Golf with Jay Delson. Redbird Heating and Cooling sponsors the Veterans Vocational Apprenticeship Program. Jed, the CEO and former Marine, will teach, mentor, and sign off on educational and mechanical work hours to help you get fully licensed while you work and get paid by the company. What a great way to launch your career as a fully licensed HVAC specialist. Visit RedbirdHVAC.com. That's Redbird Heating and Cooling. For the best in Italian cuisine in St. Louis, look no further than Paul Mano's, located in Chesterfield. It's traditional Italian cooking, and their best ingredient, it's their tradition. It's cooking like Paul's grandmother used to make and like his mother still prepares today. There are no corners cut at Paul Mano's, from greeting you at the door to the pasta you'll share with your family. Paul Mano's is committed to bringing you their very best anytime you share a meal at their place. It's Paul Mano's located in Chesterfield. Hey, this is Jay Delsing for SSM Health Physical Therapy. Our golf program has the same screening techniques and technology as the pros on the PGA Tour use. SSM Health Physical Therapy has the Titleist Performance Institute trained physical therapist that can perform the TPI screening on you as well as use a KVEST 3D motion capture system. Proper posture, alignment, etc. can help you keep your game right down the middle. We have 80 locations in the St. Louis area. Call 800-518-1626 or visit them on the web at SSM 
physicaltherapy.com. Your therapy, our passion. Along with Jay Delsing, I'm Dan McLaughlin, and we have golf royalty from Belleville, Illinois. And I mean royalty, and that is Jerry Haas, longtime men's head coach at Wake Forest University, longtime pro, and he's been kind enough to join us. And, hey, Jerry, thanks for your time. We certainly appreciate it. Always great to talk to the homies back there in the uh, St. Louis and Belleville area. And uh, I caught up with Jay a couple weeks ago about a couple players he's been teaching. And uh, when you've been around golf as long as we have, it's um, it's a wonderful sport to be a part of for sure. Uh, Jerry, when I when, uh, well, and I really echo what Danny said. I really appreciate you jumping on. But you know, when I think about how lucky we've we've been and how great the game has. been, been to us and what it's provided man it's uh it could have gone a lot of different ways <laughs> you guys kind of you came from a golfing family i had a lot of sports in the family but in the area that we grew up it could have gone a lot of ways man we had some players didn't we the more i think back about it and uh you ended up going to ucla we talked the other day that all five guys on your team uh, played on the pga tour which is incredibly impressive um you were a great player in the st louis area and we were at St. Clair over there in Belleville, and luckily enough, we were able to be a part of the St. Louis District Golf Association. So that gave us some really good competition. And then, um, you know, having Uncle Bob Golby as my brother Jay's teacher and then my teacher, and um, he was really, really good when you look back at uh, keeping the game pretty simple, great fundamentalist. And, um, you know, I still play okay today. And, uh, I miss him a lot, but I think about him a lot and all that he taught me. We really lost a great a great man when Bob passed. And, and um, when I think back, Jerry, uh, just, the, just the conversations I had with Bob, his gruffness, his get right to the point, he's so tough and hard-nosed, wasn't he? He was very hard-nosed, but yet, you know, it's funny. I, he used to always tell me, tall through the ball, tall through the ball. He told me that once. I mean, he told me that hundred times and you know you got to swing under the two by four and basically what he was saying it's it's what people teach today oh you got to work from the ground up you know but tall through the ball and that's kind of the way guys taught back then because he was around great players and they kind of copied each other or talked to each other and then he would relay great information to you um and then he would leave town for about three weeks and you'd work on it and then he'd come home and we'd say, hey, how's this? And he'd go, no, no, that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> like, what do you mean that's not right? I just worked on it for three weeks. Let me show you again. He'd show you again. And like, oh, okay, now I got it. And then, yeah, that's better. And you'd see him in a couple of weeks. So um, he was really, really good at, uh, you know, it's like any teacher that we all go to out there that want to get better at golf. You go to three different people and they all tell you the same thing, but in a different way. Uh, we all see the same thing. And and kind of tall through the ball and swing under the two by four and, you know, little things. Uh, I mean, my brother Jay, I've heard him say that I still think about having my belt buckle to the target when I finish my shot. He's like, that's kind of the only thing I really think about sometimes when I'm going bad. And that kind of clears things up. It makes your body work. Um, it makes your club path very nice through the hitting zone. So he was good. He was really, really good at that. Jerry, you would offer remarkable perspective on this. Is just a simple question. Yes, there are similarities to the game when Bob played and you played and Jay played now, and you guys are still playing today at a high level. But how much, and you're a college coach for 25 years, how much has the game changed? Simply put, how much has the game changed 
and maybe it's the kids, the equipment, the courses, whatever, but how much has it changed in those 25 years? You know, I would say this. I would say the good players back in the day would still be the good players in college today. Um, you know, people have asked me that question a lot. I'd say there's a lot more guys that can shoot 72 to 76 than there was maybe back in the day. But there's not many that can shape the ball or are willing to even try to shape the ball. They just have one shot. They hit it pretty hard. They try to get it on the green. Um, and they're, they're all pretty good putters is, is one of the differences. But when you look at the, the greens that we possibly played on with spike marks and imperfections, and then you went to the, you know, we never had rollers that rolled greens and we never had, we never had um, spikeless shoes and all those things. So making a three, four footer today is a lot easier than it was in the day. You make more eight, 10 footers. And um, I would say that's where it's changed the most. The conditions of courses, it doesn't matter where you play anymore these days. You're like, wow, that course was nice. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a little local public or it's, uh, you know, one where you paid $500 to play. So I would say that's the one thing I, I, I will say this. I've gotten to be a better player sitting in the golf cart for 26 years <laughs> watching players play because we, we make the game so much more difficult than it is sometimes. And, you know, just lay out, just put it in front of the green. Don't try to hit the hero shot out of the trees, you know, just pitch it out and might make a bogey here or there, but you shoot a better score because inevitably you're going to make four or five birdies during the day if you're a pretty good player. But, um, just sitting back and watching them and observing them, um, more one-handed finishes than I've ever seen that end up going 10 feet away. Um, I don't <laughs> feel like the day when Jay and I played that if you hit one hand or it was a heel or it was slicing or it was hooking, it wasn't going 10 feet from the 10. If I hit one, Jerry, you were probably helping me try to find mine. Mine would go off the planet. I yeah, balls could curve a lot, a little bit, couldn't they? Oh, my gosh. Jerry, one of the things that I'd love to get your opinion on is that when I grew up and the, the best players that I played around, they all hit their long stuff high and their shorter stuff low. And and, I, and I'm talking a lot about wedges around the greens and, and things like that. What are you seeing nowadays with the kids? I, w I would um, say that uh, they don't think that way. They – they want to hit it high all the time. They want to hit a high wedge in there. And they, you don't see many good amateur players hit the low skippers in there. They, they kind of have a number and then they try to land it around it. And if it, if it spins back to 20 feet, so be it where, you know, I think a good player can play two, three holes into a round and he can tell right away, okay, greens are spinning or, you know what, the greens are moving a little bit. So I call it negative yardage. If Jay Delsing has 85 yards, and the greens are spinning, then he really has about a 90 to 92 yard shot. And if they're firm, then he only has an 80 yard shot. So you really have to be able to adapt during the round. And um, I don't think kids do that. They send me a lot of videos, even at uh, my school, Wake Forest and others, they, they all want to look at their swings and stuff. But when you get to the golf course, you only get one chance to hit the shot, the particular shot. Uh, your ball is usually a little below you, a little bit above you. You got a bad lie, a good lie. There is no consequence on the range. You just rake one in. Oh, that wasn't very good. You rake another one in. Oh, that was better. But on the course, you don't get that option. So um, I'm, I'm a big, big proponent of playing. I don't think you can play enough as a kid, as a player. And um, But that takes time, you know, and, that, and 
time seems to little be a little bit more valuable today. I don't know why, maybe because of phones or video games or whatever it is, but um, or maybe we we just didn't go to the range as much. We just played. We did a lot of playing, and I think that's why we thought we were pretty good, or we or, or we got to be pretty <laughs> players. You know, I I think so. And Jerry, one of the things is that talking to some of the younger players they're not really sure how to hit something that's in between a club and they also don't handle necessarily those back pins so well with short irons no they don't and um my uncle bob used to say they just swing hard at it and hope there's grass underneath the ball when it lands you know they don't (laughs) (laughs) you're right they don't hit the chippy eight they'll just say well i'm going to swing hard at the nine if it gets back they're great if not and and to me, that's a wasted opportunity of, man, if I could get pretty good at little knockdown nine iron, little knockdown wedge, little knockdown eight iron, I might get one or two more looks for birdie during the round. And if I play a 54-hole event, I got six more birdie looks, and I happen to make a couple. That might be the difference of top ten or winning. So um, it, it is a lost art, and it's something they don't like to try. Um, I've always felt this when a guy can swing really easy at a shot on the range or on the course and kind of, I don't know, 50% with his body motion and hit a pretty good shot, that means he's got a good control of where his club face is. But most players don't, so they want to swing hard to make sure that thing catches up at the bottom, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. but um, Yeah, definitely. I just don't feel like that uh, they're afraid to hit a little one because it's going to go right. Uh, if you're right-handed or it's going to go left if you're left-handed. So instead of doing that, they just swing hard and, and, like I said, hope that it ends up pretty close. Head coach at Wake Forest is Jerry Haas, a Belleville, Illinois native, and has been kind enough to join us. How often, if at all, did you ever talk to your uncle about the Masters and everything that transpired? He wins it. He's a hero for so many of us that hail from the Midwest, and he wins the Masters, man. How, how often was that ever brought up or just in, in casual conversation that you talked about it? Well, you know, I always, when I tell people he was my uncle, he's a Masters champion, you know, I don't get into the details of what happened with Roberto DiVincenzo, and they've done some nice things on it. And, um, you know, I guess for a while there, they always talked about, oh, Roberto was robbed of the Masters because of what he did, you know, but I guess in my thinking was they should clarify a little bit that there would have been a playoff. So you don't really know what would have happened. And uh, I guess the rules of golf say when you sign for one hire, you get that. But my uncle's got a great letter from Bobby Jones that said he had a beautiful three iron into 15, one of the finest long irons he's ever seen. He made Eagle. And as my uncle said, I never had one guy come up to me and said, man, you got lucky. So (laughs) I think that that made him feel, respected and that uh, the guys knew that he was a good player and he deserved to win, um, even if it was in those circumstances. But, um, you know, he, he, he got, uh, he got a lot of heat for it. He did tell me that they, um, they, they offered him $50,000 a year later to play a made for TV match. But he said that was a lot of money in 1969, but he turned it down because he's like, if I lose the match, they would have said, Oh, see, you shouldn't have won. So um, he didn't, but uh, he did tell me a funny story that he went to Argentina with um, Roberto and he thought, man, they're going to hate me over here. And uh, he, he would hit a shot into a green and they would, they start chanting golpe, golpe. 
And he's like, man, these people love me over here. Well, he found out they were they weren't saying Goldie, they were saying Golpe, which was which means good shots. So he thought the whole time, the whole time they were chanting his name. He's like, all oh, these people love me, but no, they. <laughs> so him and Roberto played practice rounds after the fact, and they teamed up in the Legends of Golf. So you know, Roberto he knew that he made a mistake, and um, um, it's, it's just the way it happened. For our listeners that don't know, and I think it was the 1967 Masters, wasn't it, Jerry, that Bob? Uh, 1968. 1968 Masters, sorry. And uh, Roberto DiVincenzo had a one-stroke lead. He signed for, he birdied 17, but signed for a par, I believe, and wound up with uh, a, a tie in the championship with your Uncle Bob. And But be, because he signed for the wrong scorecard, you're – yeah, Bob was the winner, and but the the point that I'm trying to make, Jerry, is that Bob didn't do anything wrong. He followed the rules, and some of the things that were said over the years, and some of the things made absolutely no sense to me, and I I never really understood it. And I I got a chance to ask, you know, your your uncle one time, and it was totally off the record, and he 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 just kind of shook his head and 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 didn't really want to talk too much about it. Yeah, I think that was just. Um... You know, he obviously he he coveted the green jacket. You know, they both guys were at the champions dinner and, you know, which has never, ever happened. Both guys were in Butler's cabin and, you know, um, my uncle felt bad for him. And here he is, the winner. And everybody kind of feels, uh, you know, bad for Roberto for what he did. But, um, you know, and they all said it was my uncle was a cheater, but he played with Ray Floyd and he he shot 66 the last day and he he finished 45 minutes ahead of Roberto. It was actually Tommy Aaron that put down the four on 17 instead of three. And then Roberto hooked his second shot on 18 left of the green made bogey. So my uncle thought there was going to be a tie, but he signed for one higher. So there was no playoff, but um, it was just a unfortunate circumstance. But um, like I said, he, um, he didn't like to talk about it a a bunch, but um, we still love going back and uh, hanging out under the oak tree and going to the dinner. And uh, from what I heard, he was he was like uh, a stand-up comic there when they were doing their uh, champion <laughs> dinner. That he'd say, "Oh, let me tell one more story," and then he'd tell it, and he'd go, "All right, I've said enough." And they're like, "No, no, one more." And so <laughs> I mean, the, the players players just loved him. And uh, some of the stories I I was at the age. My brother's ten years older. He's twenty-two. He's off playing the tour. I'm 12 years old. So I got my uncle while he was working for NBC and kind of starting the champions tour. And I pretty much had him from 12 till 18 till I went to college. So he taught me there for six years and we did a lot of quail hunting together. And I mean, he told me stories like you can't believe about Johnny Bulla and, you know, Arnold Palmer, Sam Snead, Ben Hogan, Billy Casper. I mean, you name a guy and, he had a story about him and, you know, and I'd say, is that true? And he'd say, no, that's not true. That's <laughs> he'd, he'd go, no, that's absolutely Literally true. true. So, yeah. Yeah. He, he never, and I'd hear him tell the stories and he would tell it in front of other guys and other players. And, and, and they, they just shook their head like, yeah, that's how it happened. So he was very good storyteller and he remembered the correct, uh, you know, sequence that happened. And uh, one of my favorites is, he won the Miami Open in 19, I believe it was 1962, and he hit it on the last green. All he's got to do is three putt, 
And this is back in the day, no ropes. And Arnold Palmer hit it in the front bunker. And he's getting ready to play a shot. And my uncle's caddy, Walter, is kind of backpedaling on the green to watch this shot. And he ends up kicking Uncle Bob's ball off the green. So Palmer comes out of the bunker. That's two. You know, that's two-shot penalty. That's a two. And so everybody, yeah, I kind of thinks it is. So they get a rules official. Well, it's not a two-shot penalty. It's a one-shot penalty. But now he has to play the ball from where it's been kicked to. So now he's got to get up and down to win. And he said he hits a dog chip about eight feet short. He's got this grainy Bermuda greens in Miami, left to right putt. And he's over the putt, and he just keeps hearing this noise of something just thwacking the ground over and over. And he looks up, and Dow Finsterwald is on top of the top of the hill there above the green, and he's got one of those zip-on weighted clubs and a zip-on head cover. And he's swinging that thing, getting ready for the playoff. So my uncle backs away, and he said he hits the worst toe-hook putt, kind of left, but the speed's pretty good, and the green kind of catches it, and it drops in the backside. And he said Walter about tackled him. He was so happy. He was a 16-year-old caddy. And he ended up winning by one. And so he's told that story in front of Dow Finsterwald. And Dow's like, no, no, that's not how it happened. My uncle's like, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> that story that is amazing. The, that, was the game, that was gamesmanship they played back then, you know? So Jerry Haas is our guest, the head coach at Wake Forest, and so many great stories with your game, your love of this game, your family's love of this game. I, I have a simple question, though. 20-plus years of doing this now uh, at a high level at Wake Forest, do, do you still enjoy it? Is this something that you look forward to every year? I do. I mean, it's um, kind of like a new crop, you know, you just don't know what's going to harvest. And the, the best part is when you got a sophomore that goes home in the summer and you start seeing improvements in his finishes. And then he comes in as a junior and you're like, oh, man, what have we here? And, uh, you know, you, you see him get better. It's uh, Webb Simpson played for me and he came in his junior year. And he tells me this later, that it's the best thing that anybody ever said to him. And he came in, he's like, coach, I, I just want to apologize for my play. And I said, why are you apologizing? He's like, well, I'm a junior All-American. I came here to college. I haven't won. And I said, well, let me ask you a question, Webb. Are you a better player here your fall semester of your junior year than when you got here as a freshman? He goes, oh, man, yeah, I'm way better. And I said, well, then that's all that's important. I said, your wins will come. Just keep getting better every six months and look at how your game progresses. And and he was a better driver and a better chipper. And I, he was just a better all-around player. And, you know, he's went on to be a U.S. Open champ and a, a player's champion. And he's done a lot with his career, but in his belief and his, you know, just um, keeps it in play and chips and putts with a, with a fantastic attitude that young man has. So. Jerry, I wanted to uh, ask who is the who sticks out in your mind as the the best player that's come through Wake, and then you got to tell us a story about something special that happened for the Haas family this spring, the Eastern Am. I would say that um, I would you know even though he's my nephew, uh, my nephew Bill Haas has ten wins. He broke Gary Hallberg's record with nine, and uh, he was a three-time first-team All-American. And, you know, he was really good. Um, obviously, Cameron Young was PGA Tour Rookie of the Year last year. The year before that, Will Zalatoris was Rookie of the Year. I'd say Will, day in and day out, hit it better than Bill, but Bill uh, Bill had more wins. Um, 
young man Kyle Reifers out of Ohio was very good player. Uh, won his very first year on the shot 61 and won a, at that time, I guess, a, a nationwide event and um, still out there kicking at it. So um, there's been some really nice players. Webb Simpson, I mentioned. Um, I've been very, very lucky, very lucky. Um, and the, the thing that you're mentioning, too, is I've got an incoming freshman here that's going to be checking in uh, to his dorm on Wednesday, and that's my son, Kyle Haas. So I'm uh, I'm really proud of him. He he looked at a lot of schools, and I think deep down he wanted to play for Wake Forest and play for his dad, but he didn't um, didn't maybe know if he was good enough. And then he started playing very nicely, won an AJGA event, and then he won a tournament in South Carolina. Then he finished third in a pretty – pretty good tournament over at Spartanburg country club. And then he, uh, uh, I was nice enough to, if you remember the name Skeeter Heath was a really <laughs> good player, a temporary of Jay's. And he, um, he was the tournament director at the Eastern amateur. And I said, Hey, my son, Kyle is a pretty good player. I know he's a high schooler, but, uh, you know, was there any chance he could get in? So he let him play in the Eastern amateur and, and, uh, Kyle ended up birdie in the last hole, knocked it on in two and two putted, or a one-shot victory, um, and I got a nice text from Curtis Strains that said, great memories for him. He said, my dad, Tom, won the first Eastern Amateur in 1957. Congratulations wow. to your son, Kyle. So, you know, Crenshaw won that tournament a couple times. Dean Beeman four times. Curtis won it. Lanny Watkins won it. So a lot of good players, a lot of good Demon Deacons won that tournament. Now, Jerry, that's all well and good. We, we got to make sure and get him some NIL Okay, for the family. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that, that's that's the most important thing here. You know that. Yeah, I'm. I'm hey, uh, Beth and I are paying for his college education. So <laughs> that's wonderful, man. That you must be so proud to to have your son part of the program. That because he he probably just grew up around there, being around the practices, being around the guys, being around you, and now he's part of the program. That's that's incredible. Yeah, I um I spoke to a lot of other coaches that had sons play for him and just what to look for and. You know, what do I need to watch out for? So they gave me some great advice. And, uh, you know, I told him he, he needs to act like a Haas on the course and off the course, but he needs to uh, he needs to play like Kyle Hess, you know, act like he doesn't have that last name. And <laughs> it just, if he was just another guy, they wouldn't look at him the way they do. And um, But I don't want that for him. I want him to enjoy it. To, he's a really good student, and uh, I think he's going to have a great college experience. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay out of his way. Oh my gosh, Jared, it'll be fun to watch. You know, Jerry, when I think back about Wake Forest, and I think about, you know, Coach Haddock and some of the, the tradition that you've you've helped reestablish at Wake Forest. It's how did you learn to coach? I mean, I know it's the game, but you know, there's that age gap and all sorts of challenges, I'm sure. Oh yeah, it's getting I'll be sixty here next month and you know, I still try to stay in good shape and keep my game nice so I can play with them. And I always tell them I'm just another good set of eyes. I know they have instructors. I know they're good players, but maybe I can get them over that little mental hump or, um, you know, show them a shot that can help, um, help them improve. But um, it's, it's a passion. I mean, you love golf. I love golf. I love watching it. I love observing it. Um, you know, the great thing is when you hear about this guy's a great, great teacher or, the, or this guy strikes it good and then you watch him on tv and they don't they don't hit every green they're in the rough they're in the trees they're they're all over the place so i i always ask the guys did you watch uh did you watch um the golf tournament um 
last week. Oh, yeah, he man, he hit it so good. I'm like, no, he didn't. He missed a lot of fairways and a lot of greens. Hey, Jerry, we, we could tell you're busy. We know you're busy, but you've given us a lot of time and great insight, and we can't say thank you enough. And make sure and don't be a stranger back here home at home. I won't be. I came back and played St. Clair um, probably about uh, three weeks ago, and it was great. Uh, my cousin, cousin Kai Golby's in the golf design and did a nice job. Really nice job. So if you get a chance, you ought to go over and play it. And, Kai, and he's done a great job in some of the other courses he's done, Jerry. And, um, yeah, the, good luck tomorrow. We know you're in a, a nice little championship and getting ready to qualify for the um, for the National Club Pro. So go go whip up on those boys tomorrow. I will. I'll take plenty of Advil and maybe some kind of fish, <laughs> fish paralyzer. Or something. <laughs> Thanks All so right. much, Jerry. We appreciate you're you. Good welcome. luck. All right. Take care. Darty Business Solutions has been enhancing the business of our customers for the last 37 years. How do we do it? Through our expertise in technology, better use of data and analytics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. We roll up our sleeves and collaborate. We build applications and effectively communicate with our partner clients to bring their goals and objectives to the finish line. Our award-winning Access Point program is a community game changer. With nearly 100 students in the program, mostly young African-American females are making between $55,000 and $60,000 per year right out of high school. That's right, fifty-five dollars to $60,000 a year right after high school graduation. That's when they begin their training. CEO Ron Darty believes the talent is equally distributed, but access to that opportunity is not. So here's Access Point, providing more and more opportunity for those in and around our community. It's Darty Business Solutions. WXOS, WXOS HD1 East St. Louis, 101 ESPN is driven by Auto Centers Nissan, home of the lifetime warranty and 30-day return. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.